0: Hello, ready to run, listeners. This is Lindsay Hine. I'm the founder of Sandy Boy Productions and the host of the podcast. I'll have another with Lindsay Hine. And why is everyone yelling with Lindsay Hine? And we are so excited that Two Before is supporting all of the shows in the Sandy Boy Productions podcast network. What is two Before? It is a natural sports performance superfood made from New Zealand blackcurrant berries, which boast exceptionally high antioxidant levels proven to enhance athletic performance. A little bit sweet, a little bit tangy, this berry will help you get more out of the work you put in. Blackberry currants improve endurance by increasing blood flow, making it more efficient for the body to pump oxygenated, nutrient-rich blood to the muscles. You can kickstart your recovery by reducing muscle soreness and managing inflammation and strengthen your immunity. Immune-boosting antioxidants and naturally occurring vitamin C are in the black currant berries, okay? So you just drink this 30 to 45 minutes before your workout. You combine their powder with four to eight ounces of water, juice, or electrolyte mix. I just use water and shake it up. I've been using this before intense workouts and love how it's making me feel. And you all can try it out and get 30% off. 2 before is offering an exclusive limited time offer to the listeners. 30% off for 20 packs plus free shipping when you use the code Lindsay at checkout. Just go to 2before.com. That's the number two twobefore.com and use the code Lindsay at checkout. All right, I will hand it over to your host. Enjoy this episode of Ready to Run.
1: Welcome to the Ready to Run podcast. I'm your co-host, Efren Kabalius, and I'm a sports medicine physician.
2: I'm your co-host, Kurt Roeser, and I'm a physical therapist. We're based out of the Boulder, Colorado
1: area and have a
2: passion for working with endurance athletes of all abilities. The goal of our podcast is to engage in thoughtful discussions with athletes, coaches, and clinicians to share knowledge within the field of sports medicine and inspire progression in the sport of running.
1: We hope to empower individuals to navigate injuries, reduce injury risk, optimize training and performance, and provide listeners with the tools needed to get ready to run.
2: You'll be able to listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Subscribe and leave a rating and review to let us know what you think and what you'd like to hear on the show.
1: You can also follow us on Instagram at ReadyToRunPodcast, as well as our website, ReadyToRunPodcast.com. all right well welcome back. We're here at the ready to run podcast um Kurt uh, and I are back from uh um, summer uh full of running and um hanging out with family and I'm um, gonna talk about uh groin pain today something we've both seen a lot of
2: yeah, it's been uh's been the season for for groin injuries in uh, Boulder I guess but uh yeah, it's good to be back glad to be here talking with you. had a good summer running and hanging out with family and the little one and stuff. But yeah, this this is uh, tricky um, tricky to treat. I think a lot of times clinicians are like a little bit gun shy to treat groin pain, and it's hard to diagnose. And um, yeah, so I think I'm I'm excited to learn something today and uh, and
1: share what I know. Great, yeah, definitely gonna um, pick each other's brains here. So This will be a fun one. Um, but yeah, we just want to get started off by talking about some of the terminology because um, hip and groin pain can be fairly complex. And, um, you know, if there's a lot of terminology thrown around, and uh, if you if you look on PubMed, you'll find different terms like athletic pubalgia, sports hernia, osteitis pubis. So it can all be fairly confusing to navigate, um, not just as a clinician, but also as a patient. So you really want to take the time to, to dive into that. And I guess we'll start with um, just getting an understanding of how we talk about these injuries. So laying out some definitions. Um, So in 2015, there was a paper uh, published with the Doha agreement, um, which was published basically to provide clarification on terminology definition for groin pain in athletes. And basically what they came up with was with this umbrella term uh, recommendation of groin pain in athletes. Um, So it's basically a clinically based classification system that subdivides things into like a doctor related groin pain uh, Iliosacral related groin pain, inguinal related groin pain, pubic related groin pain, uh, and then hip related groin pain, and then other causes, which would be like an inguinal or femoral hernia, nerve entrapment, or referred lumbar pain. Okay, so yes, yeah, so I want to start with that, and you know, like you know, differential diagnosis is fairly broad when you see these injuries. Um, so this, you know, this paper um, basically helped to can provide us with a consistent approach into how we evaluate these injuries.
2: Yeah, I think you said before, like you have to know what you're treating so you can most effectively treat it. Um, and for me, what I always tried to think about is like, what tissue, you know, the biggest thing is like, what tissue are we treating? Are we going to be treating a, a joint or bone or a tendon, um, or some of the more like, um, proximal, like inguinal stuff. Um, so yeah, I think it's really important and, um, it can be pretty hard to figure out. So yeah, I guess, um, yeah, where, um, where would, where do you start? Like if somebody comes in, and they've got, um, some groin pain, like, um, are you going to run through some, some physical tests or, um, what's your, uh, what are you kind of going to hone in on first?
1: Yeah, I think definitely, um, physical exam history is where I you know, gather most of, um, how I want to treat these. And, uh, I really use this really, really great paper, um, published by Falvi et al, um, uh, uh, titled the groin triangle. And so basically he came up with this um, path anatomical approach um, to diagnosing chronic groin pain. So just for the purposes of conversation, we're talking about chronic pain, not, not acute groin strains. Um, and so basically he talks about this triangle where you have three points. So if you can imagine um, first point being at the anterior superior iliac spine, so the top outer part of the pelvis, uh, the second point being the pubic tubercle so really central um, along the groin. And then the third point is basically they describe as 3G, which is groin gluteal greater trochanter. So you basically make three points in there. And um, the reason they call it 3G has to do with, well, yeah, you know, the stuff starts with G, but also it's not only describing like the um, spatial relationship in terms of like from side to side, but also depth from front to back as well. Um, so that was a great paper that kind of guides how I think about things. So I kind of start with that as a landmark, and then when I jump to the exam, the paper also describes uh, something called a pubic clock. So I'll listen for things because um, we'll we we'll get into it, like pubic bone stress injuries, doctor tininopathy, you know rectus abdominis tendinopathy, um, inguinal hernias, etc. Um, but basically, what you do is you you take the pubic tubercle, which is like the central bone on the pubic bone. So you have your uh, symphysis, which is in the center that's made up of cartilage. And on either side, you have the pubic bone. Um, and so if you take one of those pubic bones and then you draw the the face of a clock on it. So if you can imagine, say we're looking at um, the right pubic bone. Um, so the 12 to one o'clock position is where like the rectus abdominis inserts. The three o'clock mm. position would be the pubic symphysis. The six o'clock position is the adductor longus nine o'clock would be the inguinal ligament and then 10 to 12 would be like superficial inguinal ligament. So um, just right off the bat, that palpatory exam kind of allows me to kind of um, think about how I want to decide on imaging and treatments, et cetera. So um, that's a good place for like, usually where I start.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, that's super helpful. I'll have to
1: check out that, that last
2: paper that you mentioned because um, it's, um, yeah, when I was learning um, about Groin pain, it's yeah, the anatomical location is like what's gonna clue you in, you know, off the bat, and then from there going into maybe some selective tissue tension testing and and uh things like that that might provoke symptoms. Um but uh yeah, once you break it down and and um using like the triangle or that clock analogy, like it's you can make it less complex um than uh than you know it seems at at the at the start. Yeah. So are you ultrasounding most uh, most folks or is that not always necessary?
1: Um, You know, just, just, for, you know, in practice, because if it's, you know, readily accessible for me, I typically will. Um, so I usually start like once, once we've taken the history and all that with like an, just an AP pelvis x-ray and one that captures both hips as well. Um, just so I'm kind of broadly thinking about, you know, things in the pelvis and then expanding to things outside of the pelvis, such as the hip where some of the pain can refer, um, so I'll start with that. And then in some cases I'll even get an x-ray, um, uh, where they take something called a flamingo view. So it's basically the person standing on one leg. And um, what well, that'll show is if there's any like, like true pelvic instability, because a lot of times, you know, people, when most people walk in and they have groin pain, they're they're kind of walking in with their predetermined you know, osteitis pubis or sports hernia. And, um, one of the kind of things we know is like osteitis pubis, like some of the old Terminology used to think of it as like an instability problem of the pelvic bone, um, to that would then create like inflammation of the surrounding tissue. Um, so if you think about like you know your pubic symphysis, um, being like the cartilage and then on either the side of the pubic bones, the thought process used to be that like there was this like twisting movement that would cause the irritation and pain and instability. And so, an x ray, um, can these tell you if there is in fact instability or not? And most often, I don't find it. You know, I think when they now, the way we think of it now is like the patients who may have it are like older patients or like postpartum females, um, where you might see some shearing of the pubic bones. Um, but the mo- the majority of the people we're seeing, at least um, that I've seen lately, males, you know, 16 to 30, um, they don't really have pelvic instability. So it's more like an overload of the pubic bone um, from like a buildup of stress, weakness in the adductors, poor core control, et cetera. Um, so I'll start with that and then I'll get the ultrasound just to scan the tendons. Um, but more often than that, I'm actually getting an MRI. Mm -hmm.
2: Oh yeah. Um, so with that flamingo, X-ray, it's, um, in bilateral stance and then just single leg stance, and that would be like, if someone had a true instability, you'd be able to see, uh, a difference or a a shifting that would happen.
1: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you have to take your AP pelvis X-ray, which captures like the, uh, so they just standing, um, and their level. So it just captures the, the pubic bones um, and then also captures both hips. And then I'll have them stand on a platform on one leg. And then if, they're, uh, if there's instability, then you'll see it on the, um, hmm. like a drop on the, um, from one pelvis to the other. Yeah.
2: Cause that's a fear that people have. And I think valid. And I think it's been perpetuated uh, in the medical community of like, you know, instability around the pelvis and certain you know terminology that we're trying to not use as much anymore or at all anymore like you know rotations or um upslips and things like that because it you know the reliability of actually palpating and assessing those in the clinic is very poor and um, even if we were accurate in it um the manual techniques to address them aren't specific enough to actually target the, you know, the things that we're trying to target. Um, so, uh, I always try to avoid talking about the that with people and then try to reassure people, even though that we're going to be doing some, you know, core stability exercises, um, just dropping in a line of saying like, you know, we're not treating true instability at a, a ligamentous level, unless maybe that person does have that, um, which I wouldn't be diagnosing. Um, but we're getting your muscles to more dynamically you do a better job of stabilizing you when you move um and um that way like whatever the injured tissue is whether it's tendon or bone isn't getting overloaded because we're spreading out the load more kind of evenly across like our whole um you know muscle and fascia system like we're supposed to use it
0: Hey friends, Lindsay Hine here, founder of Sandy Boy Productions, host of the podcast, I'll have another with Lindsay Hine. And we are so excited to have Sidekick Tool joining the Sandy Boy Productions podcast network as a sponsor. If you have not used Sidekick Tool yet, let me tell you, it is an amazing tool for recovery. You can just use three easy steps for pain relief to help you get back to doing what you love. The Sidekick Tool, can help you with shin splints, neck pain, hip pain, shoulder injuries, Achilles tendinopathy, knee pain, IT band pain, back pain, so many things. It is skin safe and it's effective. The unique edge works deeply into your muscles without causing any damage. It's an effortless massage and the tool's weight handles the workload and the versatile shape works on the full body. I use Sidekick Tool on the bottoms of my feet to avoid plantar fasciitis. And I know a lot of professionals like Molly Seidel and Sarah Hall use this tool. There is a long list of benefits to muscle scraping. The therapy stimulates multiple mechanisms to decrease pain and promote recovery. And the good news is you all can check it out. Just go to sidekicktool.com slash RTR and use the code ready to run for a 15% discount. All right, friends, enjoy the rest of the show.
2: So we, we had mentioned uh, MRI, which a lot going on there. So something i feel like i've seen recently in a few of the, the cases that we've been working on um it seems like there's multiple sites where the pain could be occurring um do you think that's just because these are chronic and there's you know multiple pain sources going on or is it easy to say like oh like this is probably the the biggest pain source you know like if it's like the adductor tendon um you know i
1: don't know i'm always like wondering that yeah, it's probably a uh, probably a lot of factors. Um, chronicity of the injury. Uh, a lot, a lot of times, it may start as one thing, like say like an adductor type of tendinopathy, um, and then may progress to something else if someone tries to train through it, such that they start to compensate and they start to get uh, more iliopsoas involvement or inguinal or pubic bone involvement. So it can certainly cascade. And uh, what's tricky with these is like. Um, so they're complex to begin with, but then the imaging studies like the MRI um, also have a high prevalence of abnormal findings without symptoms. There was one study that showed like 71% of asymptomatic athletes may have some signal change um, in the um, pubic um, symphysis or pubic bone. So it's a pretty high prevalence. And so that can even make it challenging. So uh, I think it's a lot of factors, um, but um, for me, I think it's going back to the what's in the history um, that makes sense and the exam that makes sense that correlates to what I'm seeing on the MRI um, rather than just kind of focusing on a bunch of different abnormal findings, because some of them may be relevant, some may not. Um, and so mm-hmm. it's kind of you have to have the whole um, and the whole picture to um, come to a conclusion and an effective treatment strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Putting it all together.
2: And um, I think that's where like some selective tissue tension testing can be helpful. So like if someone has pain with resisted adduction or the resisted um, sit-up test versus uh, hip flexion, you know, you can kind of like tease out some of the details there. Um, And then back to the anatomical location that you were describing um, at the beginning of the episode, like, yeah, you can pretty, pretty well like start to put together like a a picture of like the best things to address. So from a, a PT standpoint, like We know the sorts of exercises that people need to focus on. And uh, I guess before we dive into that, like what's your um, advice on running or not running and people that have pain here? Obviously it depends, but um, the most people that have symptoms need to take complete rest or can people kind of run through some pain with the pain monitoring model or um, where are you at on on that as far as a kind of running through these injuries or with these injuries?
1: Yeah, I think it's gonna vary depending on what the actual like pathology really is. So like the the one thing I would say to not run through would be the the pubic stress reaction or stress fracture. Um, and so, you know, these, these people will tend to present with like, you know, they're very, very hot and tender like on the pubic bone, either, um, you know, centrally at the symphysis on the bone itself and, you know, they can have some abdominal and adductor type symptoms as well. But some of the things they'll say is that the, the pain will be more of a gradual onset. And they'll say that it's getting worse with increasing intensity, such as like when adding in speed work um, or when racing a lot. And then when whenever an athlete says they're starting to notice like diminishing performance, long, you know, loss of power, um, that's another way they'll describe it, or it just feels like they might say like their leg can't give them back what they want when they try to push um, is how some people have described it. Um, That to me, like um, is a red flag. Now, granted, it can happen to things other than bone stress injury. But when I hear those two things, like that's a red flag to say, okay, well let's, let's wait on imaging first, before we continue to train on this. Um, Whereas a person who's kind of presenting more with like interductor tendinopathy where, you know, pains warming up, make it aggravated a little bit um, but they can still continue, you know, training um doesn't linger for more than two or three days um stop progressively getting worse um and that's a patient sure where you know we might be able to still continue some level of training I mean, we just back off the back off the intensity because intensity for sure is going to um, be the thing that aggravates us the most um and then while, while we try to figure out what's going on mm-hmm. yeah
2: well, that's super helpful
1: and then also
2: you mentioned at the beginning um subjective history so like having a, had a previous bone stress injury is also going to be a red flag for me as mm-hmm. to like, you know, like, uh, how, how quickly do we want to get imaging? Um, if we think it might be a tendinopathy I've seen, um, yeah, people do pretty well with a little bit of a, a break, but, um, that's why, like, I think imaging can be really helpful in, in these cases because it can let you know, like, oh yeah, we definitely need to rest or we can kind of manage it more like a tendinopathy or, um, I guess like a, a muscle fascia strain, if it's more proximal inguinal and uh, kind of run through a little bit, see what you can do um, while we're kind of getting that kind of more global core and um, pelvic stability um, kind of worked through with um, with some PT exercises. And yeah, the rehab for these like exercise wise is um, pretty like oftentimes not exciting, uh, in the, uh, the acute phase, you know, it's kind of some, some pretty basic transverse abdominis, um, kind of, um, stability exercises, your PT, your PT classics that, uh, that you learned in, in PT school. Um, but really getting patients to buy into like training, um, you know, their, their deeper core and trunk stabilizers, because even if they weren't necessarily week before this injury, like we know that pain is going to inhibit some of those deeper stabilizing muscles, um, of the, you know, around the spine, um, you know, someone might need a, a, a pelvic floor PT, uh, workup if, um, they've had chronic pain around their pelvis for a long time. So I always think that's a, a really helpful resource to have a good uh, pelvic PT that you can refer folks to, um, men and, and women, like, um, it can be a real kind of game changer for athletes that have been dealing with this for a long time. Um, and then yeah, adductors, like I, I use a lot of isometrics in the early stages and then progress to harder and harder. Um, uh, you just adductor strengthening exercises.
1: What are some of your go-to like transverse abdominal, like, and, um, adductor exercises?
2: Yeah. So, um, I feel like if we're talking about like athletes, like most athletes are going to kind of know how to activate their transverse abdominus by doing like a draw-in maneuver. So I'll just practice it in supine usually with like a supine march or a dead bug sort of a thing. Um, kind of just making sure that they're able to, um, dissociate, like, you know, keeping their transverse, transverse abdominus, um, tightened, but not necessarily having to lock in their all of their ribs and pulling all their obliques and and all of that. So I think that's helpful. Um and then pretty quickly going to um like some quadruped work, you know, bird dog type things, bird dog on the foam roller, different planks or side plank variations, or like uh in standing or half kneeling, pal off press. Um, and eventually more dynamic like yeah, you know, trunk twisting and wood chop sort of motions. So yeah, just I think giving people some progression and enough to feel like they're they're getting a little bit of work but making sure you're telling them like this doesn't need to be super hard or super fatiguing in these early weeks um we want to get some gentle um kind of re-education to the area and um, let things heal while we strengthen a little bit yeah for the adductors just like a i usually start people with like a supine isometric against like a foam roller or a ball or something where they're doing four times 30 seconds, squeezing the, the uh, foam roller and, um, just kind of let them work on that for a few days and then progress from there. I like Copenhagen's eventually, or standing banded adduction. Um, yeah, I don't
1: get super fancy with it, but, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Even those Copenhagen's are pretty, pretty tough.
2: Those are hard. Yeah. The, I mean, most people can, jump to, uh, a modified one, like a short lever one fairly quickly. Um, but especially runners, like probably have never done any strengthening for their adductors. So if you have somebody, if you want to blow somebody up, have them do a full, um, Copenhagen and, and hold it for, you know, like a couple times a minute or something. Um, and, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll
1: probably have a more sore groin after that. Yeah. Um, actually the past couple I um, patients I've seen who presented with this, um, so they, when they were dealing with the injury, had Googled um, adductor exercises and Copenhagen's came up and it's a great exercise. Um, but um, each, I think each one said, yeah, after that, like it really kind of got worse after that. So it's like, this it is one of those things where like having like someone like, like you is great just because it's not just about like four or five really like sexy or unsexy exercises. It's about knowing what the progression and when to introduce them, um, which mm-hmm. I think you're just kind of masterful at doing.
2: Yeah. And I think that's a great like goal to work up to is doing um, some variation of a Copenhagen. And you can get super you know fancy with those with like, you know, bouncing uh, a band in the squat rack or, you know, you can you can make those really hard. Um, but then like, how hard does it really need to be, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So, you know, we know that most of these get better with conservative treatment um just yeah pinning down the right diagnosis is just is the is the most challenging part of these um what what kind of guess two two questions what kind of flavors of groin pain cases have you seen recently um and also like uh how do you how do you have the conversation about like you know timeline for returning back to running versus returning to racing mm-hmm. yeah i feel like i've seen a
2: handful of yeah kind of like you had mentioned um 20 mid-20s to mid-30s um either you have like uh elite professional runners or like a couple college kids so pretty fast um pretty fast people is, is who I've seen recently and um yeah the whole spectrum of like total time off um and then a few people that I was seeing for something else that had kind of this other thing going on and um I was able to kind of based on all the tests that we had described, like I thought one person was dealing with, um, more of a, you know, sports hernia and guinal sort of cause of pain and, uh, encourage them to maybe get some imaging if it didn't get better, um, when they were back in their, um, their, uh, where they're from. And, uh, yeah, then I, I thought the other, uh, the other fellow had, um, some rectus abdominis tendinopathy, um, kind of right at the insertion. And then I, I feel like over the years I've seen just a lot of adductor, uh, proximal adductor tendinopathy. Um, that's the most common thing that I'll see. And I end up doing, uh, I think dry kneeling works pretty well as like, a you know, pain modulation on the early end, um, some soft tissue work. And then, you know, kind of just like looking at globally, how their hip is moving, how their lumbar spine is moving. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that we can do, um, in, those more tendinopathy sorts of things to kind of make sure people are moving well stabilizing well um and then kind of what sort of strengthening or rotational stability things they need to work on integrating more regular r- regularly into their their program um running wise yeah it's tricky i feel like most people i see can still run um but it's like the higher end speed so maybe it's just they avoid that for you know a couple weeks Um, But I do like to put a limit on like, you know, like maybe it's a month or maybe it's six weeks of like, if this isn't getting better, um, then yeah, we need to go get imaging. And most of the time, I honestly, I try to send people sooner to like, you know, see somebody like you to get, like, just figure out what's going on. Um, But that's kind of the alternative is like, well, if you you give it six weeks and you're not in a rush um, and you can just avoid the things that bother it, that's kind of option B if you don't want to figure out the diagnostics more specifically right now. It's important to, and I I know that you do this some, and that's, I like working with you for this reason, like you've got to set them up for success in terms of their expectations. Like um, most of these things aren't going to be a quick fix. And so saying like, Oh yeah, I think, you know, if we're diagnosing it as a tenonopathy, um, this is going to take, you know, maybe six weeks to 12 weeks to get, um, you know, back to, you know, 95% and then maybe another month or two after that, even to really, you know, not have to worry about it in terms of your high-end training. If it's somebody that's like doing sprinting and, and racing and competing, um, so yeah, they take time, and so making sure people's expectations are that this is is going to take time. Um, and then the other end, if it's a a bone stress injury, like you know, kind of figuring out like you know if there's any other energy availability uh, stuff that that they need to kind of work on.
1: Yeah, and this is usually for all those reasons. I think I, I tend to have a lower threshold for earlier imaging just to rule out some of the more kind of sinister things like the bone stress injury, and you know had some cases where it's even more complex, where you have, you know, some impingement testing that suggests maybe there's something going on in the hip joint. They also are are tender over the adductor, um, pain with resisted hip flexion, or they might report pain, coughing and sneezing. So they have the whole gamut of like, you know, four or five different things. And so for me, a couple of things are super useful. Um, One is to um, get the imaging to rule out stress injuries first um, and foremost, and then um, sometimes I'll even do like a diagnostic um, uh, anesthetic injection of like ropivacaine um, anesthetic into the joint, if it's really confusing. And that way I can at least say, Hey, look, this is inside of the joint or outside the joint. And then we can kind of work from there. That tends to help a lot. Um, and then um, one thing I forgot to mention really quick is in terms of the MRI study, um, there was a radiologist at a conversation or conference this past spring in Phoenix, where she talked about the different types of MRIs and, Um, how that a 1.5 tesla mri uh, with this you have to specify that you want like a sports hernia protocol or at least establish with your radiologist what you want um, just because like a regular mri pelvis or or hip might not capture these injuries fully whereas if you request a sports hernia protocol um, it'll get an expanded field of view so you look at the hips and the pelvis and it also takes these like oblique cuts so that it can um, assess the adductors a little bit um, a little bit better Mm. Um, so that was one thing I had learned. Okay. So sports, sports hernia protocol. Yeah, that's what it is here. It might be different at other institutions, but it's, it's essentially, you have to define it with your radiologist, um, that, that you want to, that's what, that's the specific diagnosis you're looking for. And they might have a specific protocol for that. So, but yeah, I mean, these are, these are, these, these, um, they look tough at the outset, but it can be actually quite easy to to decipher once you, um, kind of, kind of tease apart the layers of it. And, you know, most of them will get better without surgery. Um and you know those that do require surgery, I mean there's a whole host of things the open repairs of the rectus, the the obliques the have um repairs are like meshes mm-hmm. tenotomies, you know, pelvic floor repairs with or without a doctor releases. so you know the list goes on, which when when you when you see like 20 different surgeries for um one thing, it's always like, well, what are we treating um but though those who um have a proper you know once you achieve a right diagnosis and there is some research saying that an open repair of like a posterior inguinal um, wall injury can actually do quite well. I mean, not, like 90% of these people will come back to sport at the same level of competition, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the ones that don't, you just kind of wonder whether there pieces that maybe weren't addressed yet that we can still help out with.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I obviously my PT bias, but like not rushing into uh, a surgery um, in this area, you know, I guess even if it was like the exception might be if it's like a, um, kind of rule everything else out and they're having, you know, pretty like definite, like hernia type pain or or sports hernia type pain. Um, cause yeah, I haven't seen specifically people for rehab after having like the, like the mesh inguinal repairs and, um, but people say they get back to doing everything, but, um, seen a few, few older guys that have had, like now they have, one on both sides it's like well what are you what are you doing that's causing <laughs> causing this yeah uh,
1: yeah cool yeah so um but yeah there's a lot of different flavors of this and uh, we'll we'll attach the um the links to the some of the papers and stuff um see so, and some of the resources just to help um you know how to evaluate these if you're treating them or um how to navigate the landscape if you're dealing with it well yeah thanks so much yeah man
2: um, Great talking with you and uh, we'll look forward to talking with you next week.
1: Yeah, have a good weekend.